0: To the Saint Emelin's podcast, I'm Ian Beardsall, and I'm Simon Carley, and this is our October edition of our monthly blog site posts update. Lots to talk about on the site, but Simon, first of all, you've you've actually left the country at some point this month. I think you've you've been away. You've been at a conference. You you've been with other people. How yeah. was
1: that? It was absolutely fantastic. We went off to Lisbon for the USEM conference, which was a blended conference. It was online participants who were face-to-face participants. After such a long period of time, for me, it was a realization that you get a huge amount of out of conferences from being there in person. I had a very, very good time. I met lots of wonderful people, had some really interesting conversations which are now leading to other projects. My conclusion is that all of this virtual stuff that we've been doing for the last two years has managed to keep us on track and it's kept us safe and it's managed to keep us going but it's not good and it's nowhere near as good for innovation for creativity for building relationships and for doing new things and a fantastic conversation with david carr from canada great friend of st emlin's fantastic guy we were just so delighted to be back meeting people Um, and hopefully moving the specialty forward. It was
0: brilliant. And how did you actually cope being in a room with other people? I mean, was there there anxiety? Did you feel... You're more extroverted than I am, but personally, I've quite enjoyed this sitting at home thing.
1: It was weird being in in places. But I've got to say that the Portuguese, as a population, not just at the the USEM conference, are very well disciplined in terms of wearing masks and um, keeping apart from each other and just generally being sensible. Can't say that's the same for all the places which I frequent um, locally here. It was pretty well disciplined. People were behaving themselves. The security or the infection control security measures at the conference were very
0: good. And people were generally pretty sensible. And so if this is the new normal for how conferences will run, is that a goer? I mean, did it really detract? If you compare this USEM to maybe one, two or three years ago... Was there much of a difference, or do you think we can live with this new normal? I think we're going to have to. We can live with it. There is something about being there in person. What
1: was different was there was very little in the way of social events, and people weren't sort of crowding together um, so much in in restaurants, or there weren't so, there weren't conference dinners and things like that. And I thought that was that's fair enough. I think we've got to be sensible. So there are those elements, and, and some of those can be very creative and and um, inspirational they were missing, but the rest of it, yeah, I think it, it works well. I think it'd be interesting to speak to somebody who attended the conference just virtually. The quality of the stream was great from what I saw, but um, I strongly recommend trying to get out there if you can. Uh, completely appreciate that not everybody will want to do that for lots of different reasons. And also, I don't really want to miss out on the fact that online conferences have, have given a lot of access to conferences. And for people who would ordinarily struggle to get there due to either financial or family reasons. And I think we need to do try, try and retain that as best we can as well.
0: Good. So positive stuff moving forward and a bit of Portuguese sunshine wouldn't do any harm either, I'm sure. So let's have a quick look at our blog site for October, should we? There's plenty to talk about here, Simon. A favourite topic at St Emeline's has always been chest pain. And I think we've done a lot over the years to try and move us forward with how we investigate chest pain. Obviously, Rick Body's tremendous work and obviously you've been involved with the, the Max and all that other stuff. But this is about CT coronary angiography for cardiac chest pain and that sort of intermediate risk group. Is this something that's going to take over our lives? Are we going to be investigating lots of people with chest pain with CTs?
1: Well, it's a really interesting trial. I was was involved in this one because I was on the data monitoring committee. So data monitoring committees, if you don't know about them, are the group of people who are not really designing the study or running it, but we sit separate to it and we see the data as it comes through. So when you've um, read a trial and said, oh, it was stopped early because the results were clearly indicative of either success or failure, it's the data monitoring committee that make that decision. So I've known about this trial for a long period of time. 37 hospitals in the UK run out of the Emerge group in Scotland, fantastic group of people up there who put this together. And they looked at taking patients with intermediate risk chest pain and then either doing an early coronary angiogram on them, so a CT coronary angiogram, or normal care, and then following them through and seeing what happened to them. And there were high hopes of this, actually, from a variety of different studies around the world that by getting the intermediate group, doing a CTCA, we could identify those patients who would benefit from early intervention, early drug therapy, and they'd do better. Interesting trial, uh, took a little bit of time to get going, took a little bit of time to finish. It's four years, but just under 1800 participants with a mean age of 62. The bottom line is it didn't actually make that much of a difference, to be honest. The only thing that we found really was that there was a slightly longer time in hospital if you had an early CTCA presumably because you pick up a few things earlier and therefore keep the patient a little bit longer to do that angiography but actually
0: in terms of the main outcome there wasn't really a massive difference and so by intermediate risk we're talking about those patients who are not we can't rule out in the emergency department we've maybe admitted them for perhaps raised troponins or an abnormal ECG or they've had heart disease in the past and they've gone on to the wards, and then they're looking at having an early CT to try and work out what happens next. I I guess that's instead of invasive coronary angiography.
1: Potentially, but a lot of these patients may not have been offered um, invasive um, angiography anyway. In fact, the standard of care for most of these patients would be that they wouldn't get it straight away anyway. The the outcome, actually, I didn't mention, but the outcome is really important. It was actually whether or not they'd had uh, all-cause death or subsequent type 1 or type 4B myocardial infarction at one year what was really powerful about this study was the length of follow-up. So it wasn't really about what's going to happen in the next few days and the next few hours, because I think we've kind of got that one figured out. All the work we've got around troponins and risk scoring and the the work that Rick and others have done on things like the the TMAX score, they're fantastic. But what happens about the patients who are a little bit unclear about whether they've got significant disease or not, does doing something really early, make any difference and this is really interesting because you'd think it's a no-brainer that if you get more information you'll get a better result but it's not the case because sometimes you're just wasting your time or you're intervening too early or you're actually going to create a complication in somebody which wouldn't have ordinarily occurred so really difficult
0: questions and, and it's good to have good science around to actually answer them. And let's just nerd out on types of MI, shall we, just for a second. So from my memory with uh, talking to Rick, an MI is defined as a rise and or fall of troponin. And obviously, that's not just due to occlusive disease in the coronary uh, vessels. That can be due for lots of stuff. But a type 1 MI, I understand, is what we think of as ACS. There's a blockage in the vessel that causes cell death, that causes the troponin to rise. That's a type 1 MI. That's the one we're really thinking about where we need to involve the cardiologists. Dazzle me with what a 4B is.
1: Yeah, so a 4B is a stent-related thrombosis, and a type 1 is the spontaneous MI, as you say, related to you know plaque rupture, ulceration, fissuring, whatever. It's not things like uh, just additional strain on the heart or infection or, or things like that, which uh, would be in different classifications.
0: There's lots of work now, isn't it? Especially, it seems the cardiologists are very keen, aren't they, on doing the work that shows that troponin is... Uh, not always indicative of myocardial occlusion, but myocardial stress. And that's something that's worth remembering. So every time you get a troponin result that's not negative, it doesn't necessarily mean you need to speak to a cardiologist, it means you need to think about why it is that those cardiac cells are dying. So CT coronary sounds tempting, sounds inviting, but perhaps maybe not something that we need to think about straight away. The next thing was another trial, Simon, and, and this was an intensive care trial. We cover these sometimes on St Emlyn's, obviously with Dan and others, we're really keen on critical care and it's it's worth knowing what happens after the ED. So what happened here? This is the REST trial.
1: Yeah, so REST trial I thought was quite interesting and it, it really follows on from a conversation I had a few years back with Rob McSweeney when he was talking about this idea that one of the ways that you can treat um, significant lung injury on the ICU was to... Or the, or the struggle, should I say, in treating significant lung injury is you often have to ventilate the patient quite hard to get the CO2 levels down. And actually the oxygenation stuff we can manage in different ways. So the idea was that if you just had a system or a machine that removed the CO2, you wouldn't have to put so much stress on the lungs to maintain the low CO2. And actually people would do better. It makes a lot of sense, really. So it's like half ECMO. That's probably a ridiculous thing to say. Somebody will phone up and say, no, that's th- completely wrong. But it's a, it's a basically... A machine which removes the CO2 from the blood doesn't really do much about the oxygenation. So what they did is a randomized controlled trial in acute hypoxic respiratory failure. So really sick patients with significant lung injury on the ICU. Multi-center, 412 patients um, admitted and put into the trial. The main outcome measure was whether they survived for 90 days or not. And they had pre-specified secondary outcomes, of ventilator-free days at 28. And they also looked at adverse events and stuff like that. Interestingly, um, again, sadly, it didn't really make that much of a difference. Mortality rate was 41.5% in the lower tidal volume ventilation group with the extracorporeal carbon dioxide removal, or 39.5% in the standard group. A difference of, what, 2%? but not statistically significant and didn't really seem to make much of a difference. And a few complications associated with it as well. So it did look like it's one of those things which are oh, pathophysiologically, this makes perfect sense. We should definitely do this. But actually, um, in reality, and at the end of the day, it doesn't appear to make that much of a difference. Doesn't mean that ECMO doesn't work, of course. That's a completely different thing. But for the moment, we think that this um, is a therapy which should probably only now be used in clinical trials, and not in routine practice.
0: It does frustrate me when physiological ideas don't come to fruition in trials. I, I love physiology. I've got really more and more nerdy about it as I've got older. I'm not quite sure why, and I bang on about it all the time. Poor medical students and and trainees at, at my hospital just hear all the time about stuff to do with physiology. But yeah, it's nice that they're trying these things, though, isn't it? And I think that's really important to try and make sure that we're thinking ahead. And the idea of just taking out CO two seems sensible for some. Of course, when you said it's half ECMO, I wanted to say, "Oh, well, is it called EC? But I, I did stop myself. Uh, <laughs> but then, I, oh no, I've done it now. Some paediatrics, Simon. Natalie is out in Australia. Natalie May, and she's been at a virtual now. Is this a colloquium? Is that what we call this? An annual update for paediatric emergencies? A colloquium? Well, apparently so. I, th- I thought it was something that um,
1: was sort of, I got it mixed up with colostrum originally. I thought it was sort of about sort of neonatal nutrition, but um, I've never heard a, a meeting called colloquium before. Have you?
0: I'm going to use it more often, actually. I've got some teaching that we're organising next week. I'm going to call it colloquium. I think it makes it sound really rather rather jolly. So maybe um, it's an Australian it's, thing. There's, there's another
1: Australian one which you pick up, which annoys um, particularly orthopedic surgeons. Is, um, You know when you put a dislocation back, what do you call it? You say reducing a dislocation, yeah?
0: Yeah, so reduction.
1: Yeah, well, apparently there's another word called enlocation. Love
0: it. I'm going to enlocate as much as I can. Uh, language is fascinating, isn't it? And I, I think at any point where we can try and use other language where it's not getting in the way of our human factors, obviously, <laughs> uh, new words are great. Uh, new words are fab. So what happened at the colloquium?
1: Well, I suppose we should really get Natalie on to talk about it. Um, but she's done a really nice review on the blog, which you're very happy to go through. Um, please do. A couple of things which I've picked out um, going through. There's a nice one on dental emergencies. Chat call Richard Vidmer um, did that. And some nice, interesting work on tooth replacement, which is something which I've done a few times. Um, and actually uh, probably I had one particularly good result so far but also talking about the issues of dental trauma and dental illness in children and particularly in children with special needs and how that could be quite complicated but also how you might miss some fairly significant pathologies if you don't dig into that so there's quite a lot of work in there Um really really good there was a nice paper oh sorry nice presentation on metabolic disease which I don't know about you but it you know we see a lot of metabolic disease in my hospital we don't get that involved with it as emergency physicians but they come through the department and they are they are complicated so i'm always happy to see metabolic disease broken down into things which are relatively straightforward to understand and there's a really nice little algorithm and process here looking at acute metabolic encephalopathy about how you investigate those you know blood gases lactate doing an ammonia getting a glucose and then doing a workup but also on here how important it is to be able to identify that there's a problem at the beginning and then start your resuscitation treatment before actually sometimes you know exactly what's going on. There's also a brilliant British website, isn't there? Is it the British Metabolic um, Association who got a website, got, but it's got all the protocols on there on how to manage all the various different um, metabolic conditions in children and adults. It's absolutely superb. So go and have a look at that. And then lastly, there's a really interesting one, vaping, which was a surprise to me. I think most people think that vaping has probably been a positive thing for public health and getting people off cigarettes, but there are concerns with it. Um, There's some vaping-related injuries, um, which can be really quite severe, actually. And also there's that little bit of uncertainty about whether or not there will be long-term health effects, because you can actually detect certainly the lung walls, the lung um, epithelium does change when you're vaping. So interesting stuff on there on day one. And then there's day two as well, if you want me to tell a couple of highlights from there.
0: Well, I mean, the day one stuff, the vaping is really interesting. As as the father of teenage boys, they don't, as far as I know, they haven't delved into vaping yet. But as far as I can, I think about it, vaping is not as bad as smoking, but it's worse than nothing at all. Uh, So I think the anti- campaign and I'm afraid I grew up with two smokers both my parents smoked heavily and so I think you either grow up as a pro or and I'm I I don't like smoking and so I kind of yeah I think there are reasons medically to say this is a bad idea and dental trauma is always an interesting one isn't it? Mm -hmm. I remain Mm -hmm. utterly convinced that if you know how many teeth a patient should have at different ages and you can name those teeth uh, the dentist or the maxillofacial surgeon you speak to will think you know a lot uh, and it's one of those topics where just knowing a little bit can be really helpful. So when you ring the dent, the MaxFact surgeon and say, oh, they've got an injury to right upper three, I think on the end of the phone, the person thinks, oh, okay, this is uh, somebody who knows a little bit about teeth. Uh, so even the basics for these less common presentations and the things that perhaps we've missed out on and we depend on our specialty colleagues is really worth it. So lots from day one. And very kindly, Natalie, she's great when we have conferences, isn't she? She always does great notes. So There's day two as well.
1: Yeah, some interesting stuff that I was going to say about that point actually it makes the same issue with ophthalmology if you've actually taken a visual acuity and you know what the bits of the eye are called always helps the conversation as opposed to this guy's got blurry vision anyway moving swiftly on um, day two uh, lots more stuff pediatric pain which is obviously something which we're very interested in we've done lots of blogs around that and um, some interesting stuff there which is maybe sort of shifting some of the or oh, the current bandwagons maybe slowing them down so things like nitrous oxide which has been a great analgesic over the years i think increasingly we're now worried about that from an environmental point of view so is nitrous oxide something we should be waving around in quite the amount that we've been doing in the past and some people have said that things like methoxaflorane has been something which we can replace the nitrous oxide for not used widely in children in the uk but is used a lot in australia but again concerns about that again maybe not fantastically environmentally friendly although a lot better than nitrous oxide but then the manufacturing costs of the kit and all that kind of things. But also occupational exposure, if you use a lot of it, then there's a good chance that your staff will get it as well if the um, the patient's not using the little charcoal filter properly. Big up for intranasal meds, uh, we use intranasal diamorphine or intranasal fentanyl, a little bit around the use of ketamine and potentially look forward to drugs which I've not used much in kids. So things like buprenorphine and dexmetatomidine, which I've not had any
0: experience of at all, but some early work out there that might be of use. The methoxyflurane is interesting, isn't it? Many will know that in the UK and abroad as Penthrox. And they are pushing their medication as very good for the environment. In fact, it's one reason we're taking it on at Southampton is that the effect on the environment of nitrous oxide is considerably greater than Penthox. It's, it's an interesting state we've got to now, isn't it? Where we're less considering the actual effect of the drug itself and how much that drug is going to affect the environment. But it is something we all need to think about.
1: I'm going to put my hand up and said I was one of the people who found that information and put it out on Twitter, which then went off to the manufacturers. And um, I'm quite happy for them to do that. What you've also got to remember, though, is though that when you're talking about the environmental impact of anything, you've also got to look at the manufacturing and the transportation costs and the disposable nature of the, the Pentrox system. Uh, that also needs to be factored in when you're making an environmental um, decision. For me, I think I, have, I am definitely using a lot less nitrous oxide now. Um, and trying to move people onto alternative medications as soon as we can, both adults and children.
0: And there's plenty more there for people to read. Uh, there's a, a bit about ARDS, um, which again, not we don't see that often. And then toxicology is really a big topic these days, isn't it? I don't know about you, Simon, but it does seem to me that we have, for whatever reason, and this is a longer discussion, a generation of teenagers who are really struggling with their mental health. Uh, Whether that's the modern life that they live or the addition of the COVID anxiety type things or or what it might be. But we are seeing a huge number of young people in our emergency department with toxicological type issues, uh, self-harm type issues, anxiety type issues. And this is a big deal.
1: I'd agree. And there's some really good stuff in here about um, toxidromes, which is a con- concept I've always loved about how to spot what might be going on with your patient when you don't actually have knowledge of what they've taken. Some really good stuff there. And actually just a little bit at the end, which I would, I'd recommend people read actually, And around the use of um, antidotes in paracetamol overdose. The reason why I'd recommend it is I think a lot of us get into that thing, well, I'd, you know, paracetamol over the line, give an acetylcysteine and that's it. That's all you need to know. But actually, there's some really interesting points in here about the fact that it's sometimes not that straightforward and there are nuances to it. And sometimes if it's not a straightforward case, then getting the advice of a poison center is still potentially helpful, even for something as straightforward as what might appear to be a paracetamol
0: overdose. Paracetamol is a fascinating drug, Uh, acetaminophen, I should say. And our experience in the UK does seem to be world leading. We have seemed to have this... uh for many years in a way that other other countries haven't I think but there's lots to learn it's you're right not just the nonogram we've got staggered overdoses and then we've got therapeutic overdoses and I I still think that the knowledge about what you need to do in a therapeutic overdose isn't well known uh, so it is different to a staggered overdose and there are there's an excellent blog post on St Emlyn's which I refer to probably on a a fortnightly basis, if not more often, and I refer others to about that therapeutic overdose of often going back to our dental patients, people with toothache who come in taking too much, mm-hmm. so it's like all these things, isn't it? The the more we think we know, the more we need to know almost. And uh, paracetamol is right up there. And there's there's now new protocols that we're thinking about using, uh, different bags. It's not that 21 hour thing that we used to do. There's options there. So still more to learn. And uh, I'm really getting to that age now where the stuff I learned in medical school is out of date, uh, which ages me considerably but it does mean that I need to keep up as best I can.
1: Yeah, other other stuff on that. Have you used um, or have you seen the use of modified release paracetamol in the UK? Not something I've seen, but apparently it's a thing in, in Australia. So that's that also messes everything up. Also some really good stuff in there about serotonin syndromes, which we've talked about on the blog before. Um, recently saw one in, um, in our patch. Absolutely terrifying. And believe me, if you're going to see it in the future, you really want to
0: read up a little bit about it in advance. So yeah, a couple of links on there would be great. Now, let's go to a hot top topic in the emergency department. It's one of those that's up there with aortic dissection as the fears, the, the things we don't see often, but we try and have to persuade ourselves that people don't have, even though they've got a, a really very common condition. So back pain, probably the most common cause for disability and missing work, certainly in the UK. And every patient who comes in with back pain into our emergency department, have they got cordura equina? Uh, This is a paper that uh, Dan was involved with, Dan Horner, and really does come down to what's important in Chordaquina. And I think the bottom line for me is clinical examination is really difficult. The only thing that can really get this is an MR scan.
1: Absolutely, 100%. They've looked at various different uh, characteristics of patients who come through the door who then turn out to have Chordaquina. What are the things that make a big difference, that make it much more likely? Bilateral pain. Sensory loss in a dermatomal distribution or loss of bilateral ankle or knee jerk reflexes. But that's the specifics. The sensitivity was well, actually, it's really difficult to work out who's got it and who hasn't without an MR scan. So, anybody with any form of neurology or any weakness or anything who's got back pain, get an MR. And the other thing which is in here, which I think is very, very interesting we talk about red flags all the time, don't we? About um, whether or not somebody's got red flags for Corda Aquina, and these are the people each do. So things like lack of anal tone or loss of perianal sensation would be red flags. That's how we're taught, correct? Absolutely. And it's not necessarily in this paper, but some of the links out, is the concept of white flags. So white flags is when you surrender and you give up. And the concept here is that when you have got complete loss of anal tone and you've lost all your sensory sensation and you're in retention and you've got no feeling, you may well have missed the boat. That is the white flag. And it's almost like the flag of surrender. And the patients that we really want to get are the ones who are in the earlier stages with a bilateral pain or with a sensory loss in one, in, um, one or both legs or with loss of ankle or knee reflexes but without the established loss of sacral sensation and sacral motor function. This is changing the way I have my conversations with my radiology colleagues in that the patients I'm really going to push are the ones who've got maybe the lesser symptoms. Whereas I think before I read this paper, it'd be the ones that, oh, they've got really established symptoms. You definitely need an mRNA scan. You clearly need it in both, but the urgency about what you can retrieve and what you can recover is actually in the patients who have the lesser symptoms, and that's the lesson I took away from this paper and the links that are that come out
0: of it. The other things it reiterates are some of the things that we get asked to do by our inpatient specialty colleagues just don't make a difference. okay, so we can stop sticking our finger in people's bottoms when they've got back pain. I mean this is one of those things that winds me up if you're not having a bad enough day already. And then some chap comes along and decides with, to put his great big index right up there. I mean, this is really making your day worse. And then this center oh, seems to be dependent on this post void bladder scan. Oh, the post void bladder scan's less than this, they're fine. I think we've got to come to terms with that this is just one of those diseases that we need to do the proper investigation for. Yeah, the pickup rate may not be great, but we're talking about a high impact, high risk condition in the same way we have with dissection. There's a number of people we image now with query aortic dissection has increased, I would suggest, exponentially. And we're still, you know, picking up small numbers, but we're not missing as many as we perhaps used to. So please, please try and share this with your impatient colleagues if you can. Let's concentrate on the stuff that makes a difference. And of course, this is easy. Simon and I work in big centers. We have MRI scanners understand that this is not that straightforward in in smaller hospitals where access to MR may be really, really difficult. But perhaps this is just one of those times where we really need to make a big system decision that that's something we have to do. Digital rectal examination, I had a conversation about that, about whether or not we can abandon it, because it's clearly
1: in this paper, it doesn't appear to be of any diagnostic value. And pretty much bladder scanning is also pretty much of no diagnostic value about whether or not you have chord the kickback I've had, and I still haven't quite figured this one out in my head, is they think it's very useful for prognosis and for detecting whether or not they need to do something immediately or whether or not it's a white flag. So at the moment, I don't think you should be using bladder scanning on the base of this paper, bladder scanning and digital rectal examination to either rule in or rule out um, chord That's not helpful. It may be helpful to the neurosurgeons to look at prognosis and urgency, but that's a conversation to have with them. And I think you're probably going to have to do your local guidelines. At the moment, I'm afraid here, people are still going to end up getting a rectal. Whether they need multiple rectals or whether it should just be done by the surgeon that you've referred them onto is a much better question. And I think that's probably the right answer. You know, if you're going to do it, do it once by somebody who's an expert in it.
0: And that, I think, strikes to everything we do. And we've got to stop doing things just because. The number of times I see this on the shop floor, oh, I'll do it just because I have to do it. And I can't do it if I don't. I've got to do an arterial blood gas because such and such will ask for it. Well, let's stop doing that and let's do what the patient wants of us. If they've got these white or red flags, they need an MR scan. And then after the MR scan, if it shows that they've got signs of symptom- suggestive of cord equina, the operating surgeon goes and does his post-void bladder scan and his digital rectal examination to decide when he's taking the patient to theatre. I don't understand quite why this is so difficult. But this is, of course, from an emergency perspective, and it's not from an inpatient spinal surgeon perspective. And I'm sure you'd get something very different if we had this conversation uh, on the other side of the fence, perhaps.
1: Yeah, and follow your local guidelines, folks. Don't, don't stop doing stuff on the basis of what we say unless you've discussed it with your local teams and you've got lots of top cover.
0: Oh, holy goodness me. Keep sticking fingers in bottoms until you're told otherwise. Please don't refer them to me and Simon as saying that you shouldn't. I mean you shouldn't, but honestly, don't I'm not taking responsibility for no no fingers in bottoms in uh, in the in the wherever your hospital may be. Um let's talk finally, we've talked a bit about flow. Indirectly, there, Simon, about how we get patients with query corder, acquirer, investigated, and Stefan has done a really interesting post just talking about cardiac output as a metaphor for, for flow through an urgent care setting. Um, it does surprise me. I must admit that we need metaphors to explain this. Uh, I don't quite understand why this continues to be such a difficult thing for people to understand. Uh, but any anything that we can do to explain this must help. And this is that concept of cardiac output is stroke volume times heart rate and then using stroke volume to think about the preload. So the number of people coming into your emergency department and your space versus the contractility. So how fast can you really get the patient through the department? And then afterload, this idea of getting patients out of the emergency department. So if you just pick on your department and consider it as a a left ventricle, uh, you've got the people coming into your ventricle, how hard your ventricle can pump. And then how easy it is to get the the people out of your left ventricle uh, once you're pumping away, uh, and that does strike me as a as a nice, neat way of thinking about it. It does surprise me still that we have to find other ways to explain this problem.
1: Yeah. So what I liked about this because you you're quite right, it's a nice little analogy using that. But what worked for me was how we manage something like a failing heart. So if we want to improve contractility, what we do is we give them um, iron shroats, don't we? So I like the analogy there that what you can do is you can give an so you can just beat people harder to make them work harder. But we also know from lots of research that just beating the heart muscle and making it work harder and harder doesn't actually solve the problem. What does solve the problem is reducing things like afterload. So your patient who's got um, left ventricular failure, you can give them nitrates, that reduces the afterload, it improves the flow out. The contractility gets better because it's not pumping against such a horrible thing. So I really like the analogy both for what it stands for in basic terms, but then actually, if you then think about how would we manage a failing heart or a failing emergency department and realising that some of the things that have been done, such as beating people and shouting at them for being slow or stupid under incredibly difficult circumstances, ain't going to work for very long because you'll kill off the muscle cells and then you have le-
0: fewer stuff and then it gets worse. And if we take the metaphor even further, I- I'm trying to think of what the emergency department version of high-sensitive troponin might be because... Obviously, everything in the end, as Rick will tell us, comes back to Troponin. Uh, I'm not sure. Is it Haribo? I don't know. It's probably snarky tweets on Twitter. Probably. Probably. You get more Uh,
1: snarky tweets.
0: More snarky tweets. Uh, And yes, and Haribo must be in there somewhere. Yeah. Simon, that takes us to the end of October. Obviously, recording in the middle of November, as is the way we do these things. Lots to talk about, lots to think about. I'm sure that there's departments up and down the land that are keeping going as best they can. In what are quite trying circumstances, we're most certainly into the the autumn period now, if not hitting into winter. I did, dare I say it, my gym has put up a Christmas tree. (laughs) I, I saw it this morning. I didn't have any words. Uh, so we're, we're there. And, and Christmas for many is a time of joy and goodwill. And yet some people seem to not do that and we end up looking after them. So keep keep smiling, everybody. There's lots to think about. You're doing great work and making a difference to individuals on a daily basis that, that frankly, other jobs don't have the benefit of. So we hope you've enjoyed this month's and Emeline's podcast. Please do rate us on whichever podcast app you may get us from. Uh, If nothing else, it makes me and Simon feel better about ourselves. Everyone take care. It's been lovely chatting and we'll see you again very soon.
1: Have fun.